That This Could Be the Kingdom by Sequel Part 2 A podfic read for you by Arkafira and George Stoner You were one of us once. Crowley is already at the table when Aziraphale arrives, in spite of coming early. He'd walked, hoping that navigating the sidewalks and dodging tourists would help him burn off the nervous energy. He does not know why he agreed to this. For old times' sake? He doesn't have anything to say, really. And yet, he dressed up for it as much as he could. He lives in clerical clothing for most of the time, but that's obviously not appropriate now and he doesn't want Crowley to see him in the collar for some reason. He has on a nice pair of trousers, a pressed shirt, waistcoat, and a bow tie. Jacket, too. He belatedly recognizes on his walk over that this is not the most inconspicuous look. People are so much more casual now, how had he forgotten this? Crowley isn't casual, though, and it's a relief. He is clad in black again as he was on stage as he is in all of his appearances, Aziraphale has noticed. The man has abandoned color, slim-cut black trousers, a turtleneck, and a brocade jacket with just a hint of sheen to it. Flash, that's what they used to say. He's wearing the sunglasses, and a private part of Aziraphale wishes he would take them off. This whole thing would feel less mysterious, less covert. Crowley rises as he catches Aziraphale's eyes and comes towards him, and for a brief, harrowing moment he fears Crowley might try to hug him, but he reaches out for a handshake instead, clasps his other hand on Aziraphale's bicep, soft from age under tweed. He feels more hopelessly frumpy than he usually does. The place where Crowley gripped his arm burns as he takes his seat. Glad we could make this work, exclaims Crowley, while picking up the menu, as if this is normal. Yes, quite says Aziraphale, wary but following suit. He suppresses a gape when he sees the prices. Good lord, he mutters, and Crowley's eyes flick up, questioning. All right over there? Oh, yes, yes, everything just looks so good. And it does look good. It'll just be the only meal he eats out for the next six months, that's all. Then the words tumble out from a place inside of him he had forgotten existed. Why don't you order for me? Crowley tilts his head up to him, lips slightly parted. Oh, I'm sure you must know what's good here. More than I would, at any rate. Aziraphale glares at his menu. He wants to escape his own body. Crowley, generously, doesn't push on this and orders the salmon and gets the scallops for himself. Crowley also orders a cheese plate and a bottle of wine to share. You drink, don't you? Yes, of course. And Crowley smiles. Aziraphale is nibbling on a rather exquisite piece of blue cheese when he launches into the small talk portion of the evening. I know you've been doing well professionally, but what have you been up to otherwise? What happened to you over, well, since I last saw you? The question hangs in the air a moment as Crowley decides how to respond. Was at Oxford for a bit. Graduated. Taught a while. He pauses, looks past Aziraphale. Got married. Married. Of course he is. Of course Anthony Crowley got married. 
Why wouldn't he? He knows blood has rushed to his ears, and he prays Crowley doesn't notice that it's masked by the sunglasses. There is suddenly a sick taste on his tongue. It's disappointment, and Aziraphale curses himself at his own heart's ridiculous betrayal. The server approaches with their entrees, and they thank her. Their conversation paused while she refills their glasses. She leaves the table, and Aziraphale swallows the bad feelings, gags on them a little, continues. Do you have any children? Crowley shakes his head, swirls his wine in his glass. Nah, it wasn't in the cards. I have friends with kids, though. Get to play a cool uncle, then some home mad on sugar. Aziraphale smiles, halfway successfully. The food in front of him is a welcome distraction from the weight settling in his gut. He cuts into his salmon, and it is cooked to perfection. The first bite passes his lips, and... <laughs> oh. It's perfect. One bite in, and Aziraphale knows it's going to be the best meal he has had all year, maybe his whole life. When he looks up, Crowley is watching him, and he flushes, not used to being observed. Crowley looks away, shifts in his seat. And your wife? What does she do? He takes a few deep breaths and studies his plate, tries to will away the color in his cheeks. Crowley looks at his Aziraphale like he's sprouted wings. She's in academia. But we're divorced. Oh, I'm sorry. Crowley isn't wearing a ring he should have noticed. The sick taste recedes. Do you not know? Aziraphale looks up to him. Crowley's mouth is soft. There is the faintest color of wine on his lips. I didn't know you were married or divorced. Not that. I'm gay, Aziraphale. His face holds, placid and calm. Oh, no. I didn't know. In the whole of his career, people have told him their deepest secrets, both inside and outside of the confession booth. Some so mundane he imagines the person just wanted something to hold to their chest and didn't have any other options. Some so shocking his toes curled and he had nightmares after. I'm gay was one he's heard hundreds of times, but this isn't a confession or a secret. This is Crowley stating a plain fact. And he isn't surprised, not really, but he is moved. Because having it there, having it sit on the table between them, recasts their history. All his memories are tinted differently in an instant, like those black and white vintage pictures that someone adds color to decades later. Inside his chest, his heart takes on a new and violent pattern. You didn't? He's hard to read behind the glasses. His mouth would suggest he's amused, but without his eyes, Aziraphale can't know for sure. Not really, no. Crowley lets out a mirthless little chuckle. It sits in the space between them, threatens to spoil their food. Aziraphale searches for a safe topic. Do you travel much for work? And Crowley generously seizes on it. Too much. Feel like I'm a permanent resident of the Hilton Hotel chain. Should carry a passport with their logo on the front. A joke. There, they're back on safer ground. For the moment, anyway. They chat about traveling, the places Crowley likes. Los Angeles, Berlin, Mexico City. The places he doesn't. Cape Town, Paris. You don't like Paris? Really? Nah, it doesn't do it for me. They talk about work in a roundabout way. 
changes in the city, local politics is somehow a safe topic, and they share notes on how they think the mayor is doing. When they agree that he's actually doing a fair job, all things considered, Aziraphale feels overjoyed that they've stumbled onto common ground again. They hit the bottom of the bottle of wine when Crowley brings up Brexit. Completely horseshit. Short-sighted nonsense. Hmm, quite right. He waves to the server for another bottle, and Aziraphale finds himself nodding enthusiastically along with Crowley's pontification. Mid-rant, Crowley reaches over and graces Aziraphale with a heavy pour. He's a bit tipsy when Crowley insists they order dessert. Then he barely touches his tart, pushes it over for his dining companion to finish. Aziraphale hesitates. It is... This whole evening has been very indulgent. Not just the food, but the company. Once they got over the initial hurdle, the evening has passed pleasant, easy. Then again, that's the way it had been with Crowley, until it wasn't. Crowley nudges the tart towards him again, and Aziraphale makes a show of saying he doesn't have that much of a sweet tooth, and they both laugh. Crowley remembers. His fork pushes through the flaky crust, brown to perfection. He hasn't had something like this in ages. He brings a piece to his mouth and moans. Mm, it's good. He mutters, and looks up at Crowley. He's being watched again. Crowley's eyes are on him, he can tell, even with the sunglasses on. He stops eating, puts the fork down, watches back. He thinks about making a light joke. Is there something on my face? When he knows there isn't. Then Crowley speaks in a tone he hasn't used all night. It's a cadence that Aziraphale knows, but it's not from what he saw of Crowley in the debate, or in the videos online. It's an old voice. It has traveled time to be here. Your people... They fetishize suffering. And it's not a new accusation, nor a rare one. But how Crowley delivers it to him, serves it to him, knocks him sideways. It is the softness in it, the defeat. I don't know that I agree with that. Again, he searches inside himself for the calm that he has cultivated and finds it to the left of where it should be. Puts it on, it doesn't fit right. He's certain Crowley will see the mislaid seams, know something isn't sitting. You were one of us. Once. Aziraphale offers quietly. Crowley ignores that offering, takes a drink of his wine. You walk into a Catholic church, and it's ghastly. You put your boy on the cross, trussed up and emaciated and bloody, and you worship it, say it's the pinnacle of human kindness. How much have they had to drink? Crowley's voice is swinging perilously close to wrecked. It's about sacrifice. Who's now? Who's sacrifice? Seraphile? There's an obvious answer, of course, but that's not what Crowley is getting at. He is searching for something much closer to home. Something inside of the body. Things are changing. Aziraphale says, not as an answer, but as some sort of threadbare reassurance. Hell, asks Crowley, and it's an accusation as much as anything. The Pope? The Pope? Crowley is frustrated, rubs his hand on his face. The Pope won't do a thing. It won't change. Not in the way it should, and not nearly as fast as it needs to. 
Aziraphale and Crowley are time travelers. This is the same. Their faces are lined and their joints feel the weight of their age, but this feeling? This feeling was born 26 years ago. Crowley wants something from him, some admission, some promise. And Aziraphale can't. He can't. What do you want from me, Crowley? Say it. Say something. Surely you didn't ask me here to berate me for not making the same choice you did. He'd be tremoring if not for the weight of the years on his chest. Crowley is suddenly dumbstruck, as if he is surprised by the situation he's found himself in, as if he didn't manufacture it. He puts down his wine glass. I just wanted to see you. Why? Tell me. Tell me. Do you ever think about it? There's no point in playing clueless. He means their year. The time they had together. Yes? I saw you outside the theater and I thought... I thought we could try this again. We were friends. You want to be friends? Yes. Crowley says, leaning forward, pleading, almost. He could be pleading. I... Aziraphale is at a loss. You think I'm silly for staying? No, I don't. Aziraphale folds his napkin in his lap. I've missed you. And the card is on the table. Crowley has taken his glasses off, and even in the dim restaurant, his yellow eyes are bright and shining, red-rimmed. Aziraphale fights for his breath. He cannot lie, and he cannot bring himself to the truth, which would be to say, I miss you. I dreamed of you every day of my life. So instead he says, in a very small voice, Is that right? He sounds more even than he is, nearly masking the tempest that has been stirred up by the mere sight of Crowley's eyes. Could we be friends, you think? Please. Perhaps. We'll not talk about work, all right? It is an olive branch that Aziraphale desperately wants to reach out and take, but all he is, is his work. That's an awfully difficult thing to do. I'll try if you will. Two steady breaths. Two steady, wretched, revealing breaths where he's sure somehow his face has shown Crowley every blasted thing that lives inside of him. All right. They finish. Crowley pays for the whole thing, waves Aziraphale's cash off. This is too much. Don't. I want to. They say goodnight outside the restaurant. You uh, need a taxi or anything? Crowley asks, leaning to look down the street, search for a cabbie to flag down. No, I'll walk, thank you. Aziraphale takes a step back, means to say goodbye, but instead says, Do you still have that car? Crowley looks overjoyed, and Aziraphale feels his cheeks break into a smile in response that can't be repressed. I do, actually. She's a good cow. Don't drive her in the city, but in the summer, I'll take her out to the country for a spin. I remember it, he says, because he does. It was a clunker at the time, but with the money Crowley has now, Aziraphale doesn't doubt that he's fixed it up, made it look spectacular. You liked her. I did. He smiles, wistful. He did like the car. He mostly liked being in the car with Crowley. 
driving somewhere, being somewhere else, a small universe on wheels. You'll have to come by and see us sometime. And there is nothing Aziraphale would like more than to slip into the front seat, feel the worn leather under his fingers, look over at Crowley and pretend the last 26 years have never happened, that they are very young again, and that things haven't had the chance to, oh, go sour. Perhaps. Again, perhaps. Before he can give any more of himself away, he nods. Good night, Curly. He walks in the direction of his bed and restrains himself from turning back. Go anywhere. A free night off and Crowley had indulged him, taken him to the nearest town cinema and accompanied him to much ado about nothing with minimal grumbling. He suspected the grumbling was primarily for show, ever the contrarian. Did you like it? Aziraphale asked as they walked down the pavement towards where the Bentley was parked a great, black, ancient thing Crowley bought from a farmer several months ago and has doted on ever since. He was one of the only students at seminary with his own car and had the opportunity to become popular as a result, but he wouldn't let anyone else in it, save for Aziraphale. This is all right, drawled Crowley, looking in shop windows as they passed. Aziraphale smiled, remembering Crowley laughing through the movie, throwing his head back with it at one point. Aziraphale had liked the movie, yes, but what he really liked was Crowley watching it. He'd had to restrain himself throughout from turning his head, watching Crowley full on. Peripheral vision had to suffice. He loved knowing what made him giggle, what shook out a guffaw. But you do like the funny ones, don't you? Better than the sad ones. Couldn't have paid me to see Hamlet or something. What would you have done? Sat in the car, smoked, cut a dashing figure for the girls who walked by? Crowley pulled out a cigarette and spun so he was slowly walking backwards in front of Aziraphale. Yeah, something like that. His cheeks were flush under the street lamps. They passed a man huddled in a doorway and Aziraphale slowed. They'd been into town a few times, but he'd never seen someone on the street, standing over a torn-open cardboard box that Aziraphale was sure gave scant protection from the cold pavement. This was a thing more common to London, he had thought, not here. It unnerved him that in a small town that was supposed to be welcoming and tidy and warm, that someone would be out here, and sleeping rough. Excuse me, called a reedy voice as they moved past. Excuse me, lads. Sorry, so sorry to trouble you. Could you spare a cigarette? Crowley looks to Aziraphale, and Aziraphale knows there is a question mark behind his sunglasses. They both, at the same moment, stopped walking. Um, yeah, sure, no, no problem. Crowley pulled the package from his back pocket and slid two cigarettes out. One for later, he muttered. It was strange, Aziraphale thought, to see Crowley uncomfortable with his own generosity. He was generous to a fault with Aziraphale, charitable even, in time and taking him places and pushing over his dessert after dinner. 
He'd gone one town over to try a French restaurant Aziraphale had been dropping hints about, all the while loudly exclaiming he couldn't be bothered with French food. Snails and all that. Disgusting. And Crowley had always reveled in it, teased Aziraphale for taking so much of what he offered. So this was different. Crowley lit the cigarette for the man, whose fingernails were black with dirt from being outside. His shoulders shuddered, his eyes closed as he inhaled for the first time, end of the cigarette flaring in the night. A sort of peace came over his aged face. Real kind of you, thank you. Not a lot of nice young fellas these days. The man glanced up momentarily, and his eyes were clear and blue. He forced a small smile to his lips that stayed clamped around the cigarette. Aziraphale didn't know this man, knew nothing other than he had found himself in a very bad situation, and now he was on the streets or between homes, that life could be perverse and unkind. Have you had any supper? Aziraphale asked abruptly. The man looked over to him in surprise. Something of suspicion flickered across his features. No? he said, as if he was unsure. Aziraphale internally squirmed in discomfort for a moment. How best to do this in a way that wouldn't be patronizing, in a way that wouldn't be holier than thou. He swallowed a breath and reached into his pocket, then thrust a crumpled bill in his fist towards the man. Ten pounds, the only money he had on him. Here, I'd like to, for your dinner. It's not much, nothing really. Crowley watched the exchange in silence. With the hand not holding his cigarette, the man reached out, took the note. He was careful not to touch Aziraphale's hand, and the whole thing was embarrassing for both of them. Thank you, the man said, so quietly. He could barely hear it over the sound of the cars driving by on the street. No need. There was a beat of silence, and Crowley took the liberty of moving the exchange to its logical end. Night, then. Take care, he said, and he pulled on Aziraphale's jumper to drag him on. They were maybe ten feet along when Aziraphale stopped again. Just a moment, Crowley. Sorry. Angel, what are you? And he watched Aziraphale walk back to the man, fiddling with his wrist, his watch. It is nothing particularly special. His mother got it for him for Christmas. For all he knew, she got it from M&S on sale. He could get another watch. I don't know if it's worth anything, he said to the man, startled at Aziraphale's return. Probably not, to be honest, but maybe you can get something for it. The man said nothing, but took the watch, held it in front of him. I'm so sorry, and I hope you can find somewhere to go tonight that isn't... that isn't here. He turned on his heels and hurried back to Crowley, not waiting on a response, not wanting one. It was one of the most inelegant interactions he feared he'd ever had. That was your watch, said Crowley, blowing smoke out into the night in front of him. Aziraphale's eyes flicked skyward for a single second, came back down to earth. I didn't need it. Crowley said nothing further. When they arrived at the Bentley, Crowley opened the passenger side door for him. Aziraphale nodded in thanks. But he didn't shut the door, not yet. He looked down at Aziraphale, and Aziraphale looked up at him. You believe it, don't you? It was as still as he'd ever seen Crowley, and as quiet. 
Aziraphale could see himself reflected in Crowley's sunglasses. Believe what? He asked. I am my brother's keeper. Of course. Of course he believed it. That was why he was here. So do you. Mm Mm-hmm. Crowley said, and took one last long drag from his cigarette. His mouth was set in a grim line. Aziraphale wished he could see his eyes, those glasses, always in the way. He exhaled, and Aziraphale could smell the smoke from his lungs. For the rest of his life, when Aziraphale walks past a smoke break on the pavement outside some office building and smells the smoke as he passes, he will remember this. He will be reminded of it when he passes through the smoking sections of restaurants, when they still had them. Over the years, during trying and lonely times, he would buy the occasional package of Curly's brand. He would sit on the porch of whatever rectory he's living in and smoke one each evening for as long as the pack lasts. He has no real love for it. When the pack is gone, it's gone until the next time around, a year or two or three later. But when he brings the cigarette to his lips, he sees the cigarette on Crowley's lips, and he takes the image with him through the night, and then gets on with his day. Crowley closed Aziraphale's door and swings around to the driver's side. Without a word, he pulled away from the curb and began to drive back. Neither of them said anything for a while, and Aziraphale couldn't put his finger on what had shifted. Some tiny earthquake had occurred, but he didn't know the source or the magnitude. He wished the car had a radio. We could keep driving now. We could go anywhere. Crowley might be joking, must be joking, but his face was serious, his eyes glued to the road. He was less casual than he normally was, sitting up straight with both hands on the wheel, ten and two. I don't think this car could get us past Farnham said Aziraphale, looking for some response, praying Crowley would smile. And he did smile. Jake, you sound like a man who doesn't want to take any more drives in my gorgeous car. Going to toss me out, are you? Who would accompany you on your outings? Jashik? Paul? Crowley laughed a real laugh then, biting and sharp like his best ones were. Jashik regarded Crowley as some sort of eccentric criminal, and Paul was the most boring man either of them had met. Aziraphale turned to watch the ripples of laughter travel through Crowley's body. There was no greater thrill, none, than making Crowley laugh. There was no greater thrill than when it was the both of them, alone, driving somewhere, anywhere. Crowley reached over and briefly grabbed Aziraphale's forearm. His thumb pressed into his wrist. When his hand withdrew, just a few seconds later, Aziraphale was disappointed. A World Without Us Crowley had proposed the British Museum as some sort of neutral ground, and Aziraphale had said yes. It was a thoughtful choice. It meant they wouldn't have to stare at each other the whole time. The exhibits would give them something to talk about instead of work, instead of what they've been up to, instead of the past. Aziraphale climbs the steps and Crowley is already there, typing madly away on his mobile. For a moment, and just a moment, Aziraphale allows himself to watch Crowley without his knowledge. 
There is a smile on his expressive lips, laughing at whatever is on the phone in front of him. And he looks young, like Aziraphale remembers him. There's something missing, too, and it's not youth. There's just something the slightest bit off. And then he realizes. Do you not smoke anymore? Crowley looks up, watches Aziraphale climb the stairs to him. He slides his phone into the back pocket of his jeans. No, not anymore. Not good for you or something. Really? That doesn't sound right. A gentle laugh passes between the two of them, and Aziraphale wonders if they've stumbled onto something workable, some chummy balance. The lobby of the museum is bright white and shining. Crowley is a stark black mark in it, conspicuous in every way, even in the throngs of tourists that Aziraphale hadn't expected, seeing as it's midweek in the off-season. But, he supposes, it's never truly off-season in London. They make a stop at the Rosetta Stone, and it's hounded by tourists taking photos, as it always is. They talk about the exhibits, tourism, the weather, surface stuff, safe stuff, staying well out of the woods. There is something in Aziraphale's throat the whole time. They are standing in front of a statue of some Greek nobleman when an American voice rings out behind them. AJ? Crowley turns swiftly, and Aziraphale follows him with his eyes. There is a striking woman with black hair and plaits, decked out in dark shawls and heavy silver jewelry. When their eyes meet, hers and Crowley's, both their faces split into wide smiles. Hiya, love. There is a real depth of fondness in his voice, a warmth that sounds like butter. They kiss on the cheek, embrace, her jewelry clinks against the buttons on Crowley's shirt. What are you doing here? He asks, incredulous. Not your scene. This shrine to colonial theft? No. She laughs and looks over her shoulder, then leans into Crowley's face and whispers conspiratorially. But Mom and Mariana are in town, so we're doing the whole tourist thing. Buckingham Palace next. Your mom? Oh Christ, don't let her see me. They laugh together again. There is history with these two. Mid-laugh, the woman's big brown eyes land on his ear fail, and her laughter trails off. I'm so sorry, I just barged right into your conversation. I'm anathema. She extends an elegant hand, nails painted dark, adorned with rings. He takes it gingerly. It's fine-boned and warm. Is it a fail? He says, and he just catches it, the recognition in her eyes, the sharp, silent inhale. Oh, she says, and turns to Crowley, eyes bright with questions. AJ's mentioned you. Aziraphale quirks his head to the side. AJ? Anthony J. has told someone about him. Oh? I'm sorry. How do you know one another? We oh, were married. They both speak at once, over one another. They laugh, and Anathema reaches out and grabs Crowley's arm. Old friends who were married, she clarifies. Aziraphale finds himself quite at a loss for words. This beautiful, bright-eyed woman was once married to Crowley, and she calls him AJ, and she knows who Aziraphale is. The implications of that are, well, he doesn't know, but it twists in his gut, regardless. She turns back to Aziraphale. I had no idea that... Crowley cuts her off. We just ran into each other recently, that's all. 
Aziraphale can't see his eyes, but instinctively knows he's warning her off something, of going further. Right, right, she says, nodding. She looks at Aziraphale and he feels like she's looked right into him, right into his chest cavity and has placed the beating of his heart, can tell that it's off rhythm, that it has been since Anthony Crowley sauntered back into his orbit. She can see it, and she knows, and she has said not a word. She speaks to them both, but her eyes don't leave Aziraphale. I'd love to chat, but I'd better catch up with my family before I lose them in here. It's been nice to meet you. To see you. Finally, she looks to Crowley. I'll call you. Yeah, all right. She kisses Crowley on the corner of the mouth, her fingertips grazing the lapel of his jacket. Then she sweeps out of the gallery, a whirlwind of dark skirts. At the entrance, she turns back and lingers, her eyes landing on them. She smiles at his ear fail, and the smile says, It's okay. And then she's gone. Aziraphale clears his throat. She seems, uh, very nice. Crowley smiles a private smile, adjusts his glasses. Yeah, she's a mate. Always stood by me, even when she didn't have to. Stood by me. It is not an accusation. Aziraphale knows it isn't. There's nothing sour or bitter in Crowley's voice, and the only past he's thinking about is the one that involves his ex-wife. Yet the words sting Aziraphale. They ask him where his loyalties lie. It's an uncomfortable question, and he tries to shrug it off as they move through the galleries. In the back of the gallery, dedicated to the Romans, the crowd is thin, and the room is dark. People won't walk this far back, but there is a display case lit up like a beacon. Within it, casts of bodies laid out on sand. A family from Pompeii, the city that disappeared in an instant. From where they stand, looking over the family lying on their side, they can just hear the dull thrum of the crowd, the occasional parent calling for their child who had slipped away, teens squealing with laughter trying to fit another friend in a picture on their phones. Aziraphale turns to the side and studies Crowley's profile. The high bridge, the long line of his nose, cut cheekbones and a square jaw, he wasn't always this sharp, maybe. Rough, yes, but not sharp. Do you really feel, says Aziraphale, so quietly, that the world is about to end? Crowley looks over to him, mouth drops softly open, and shakes his head a little, confused by the question. Under Crowley's serious gaze, he feels the rug has been pulled out from under him. If he thought Crowley wouldn't insist on knowing what he was on about, then he'd abandon the conversation now. He doesn't know if he wants to know the answer anyway, but he goes on. In the debate, you said the world was going to end, that it's ending. Do you believe that? Oh, says Crowley, and he smiles in a way that's both sad and amused all at once. Not really. Aziraphale waits for him to elaborate, knows Crowley won't leave it there. Of course it won't. It would be a self-centered thing to think that. The world will be here long after we all die off. After we've taken everything she can give us. She'll tire of it. And we, humans, will end. But the world won't. He turns to look back at the citizens of Pompeii, gone to sleep as the life they knew was obliterated in the blink of an eye. 
There is a tightness to Aziraphale's chest that threatens to suffocate him. Will it be a world, though, without us? Don't we make it one? If a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it doesn't make a sound? Is that what you're asking? Unless there's a human walking around knowing that they're there? Does the world really exist? Crowley licks his lips, turns back to Aziraphale. Do you think we're that special? Yes. His answer is immediate, and that strange, sad smile is back on Crowley's lips. Of course you do. Which we were they talking about? Is it us, you and me? Aziraphale wishes he was bold enough to ask. But that's too much, and whatever the answer is, he couldn't bear it. Do you believe there's anything after all this? Asks Aziraphale, quietly, looking back to the bodies. How sudden it must have been for them, to have no inkling that the end was nigh. Heaven? Hell? Anything. Crowley pauses, longer than Aziraphale thought he would, and then Crowley surprises him. I don't know. Anyone who tells you they know for sure that they're going to get there is lying. It's the I don't know that gets him. Crowley is not a man who equivocates. You sounded very sure on stage. Certainty pays the bills. Crowley mumbles. And you, what do you believe? To be asked at all displaces him. That Crowley doesn't assume he knows the answer means the careful facade that Aziraphale has built around himself is wearing thin. So for the first time, Aziraphale puts into words what has been troubling him for years. I'm not as sure as I once was, but... And there is a but. Thank God for it. I hope that there is something there for us after... To make all this worth it. All this? Aziraphale gives one last look to the family and turns away, begins to walk slowly back to the crowd. Oh, the trials of life, I suppose. Crowley follows. Life doesn't have to be a trial. I know that's the way you've been told to think. It doesn't have to be bad. Life shouldn't be something to bear, so that you can get to the good thing on the other end of it. But then... There's no reward. He hopes he has successfully masked the fear in those words about what it means if the end is simply the end. This is the reward, Aziraphale. To be in the world with other people, or excellent bookshops, neighborhood cafes where they know your name. Crowley is sure again. It's unsettling to admit how foreign that concept is to him, that to be alive itself is a reward. That the world could be so full of strange and beautiful things, and for that itself, to be the gift. To speak to Crowley as he is speaking now, for the opportunity to exchange and share without malice, that this could be it. That this could be the kingdom. But... What about those who aren't so lucky? Do we tell them there's nothing at the end? We try to help them now. Certain. Sure. It sounds so simple, and maybe it is. Speck of Dust Aziraphale was frantically pressing his fingers to his lips, chastising Crowley as they moved through the trees. 
Crowley was laughing, his cackles ringing out into the night. The flashlight in his hand flicked in every which direction, giving Aziraphale the impression of a frantic star tumbling through the night sky. Sort of beautiful and manic, and not at all helping Aziraphale walk safely in the direction that Crowley had insisted they go in. You want me to be quiet, do you? Crowley hissed, teasing Aziraphale in a way he didn't particularly appreciate, not here, in the middle of the night. Someone will hear, he admonished, reaching out and finding purchase on a tree. He squinted down at the ground, searching for roots, things that would trip him up. I'll be quiet then. So quiet it's like I'm not even here. And with that, Crowley switched off the torchlight and they were plunged into darkness. The moon was out, but it couldn't be seen through the thick of the tree canopy. Crowley? whispered Aziraphale frantically, to no response. Crowley, I swear, I swear, turn the torch back on! He stopped moving, eyes wide in the dark. He could just see his hand out in front of him. Crowley, please! A snapped twig, a rustle of leaves. Aziraphale swung his head in the direction of the noise and saw nothing more shifting to the other side of him. Crowley! He was getting properly angry now and scared out of his mind. He looked back in the direction he was sure they had come from, looked for a light from the seminary grounds and saw only the black of night. His breath was coming ragged. Anthony, please! I hate this! I... He yelped like a struck dog when he was grabbed from behind, sinewy arms of rope wrapped around his waist, and Crowley's hot breath on his neck, barely holding back hysterical laughter. How very dare you! Aziraphale cried, not a thought to volume now. His heart raced furiously. Crowley held him tight, and Aziraphale braced himself on Crowley's strong forearms, trying and failing to set himself free. I didn't like that at all. It wasn't funny. It was a bit, laughed Crowley into Aziraphale's spine. No, not a bit. Aziraphale's fear subsided as he realized Crowley was flush against his back. He swallowed and stood there a moment in the dark. Crowley's laughter faded away. The only sound left in the night, the pant of their breathing. Um, started Aziraphale. Now that you've taken several years off my life with that fright, do you mind telling me where you were intending to take me? Unless this was the point, of course, to make me wet my pants. Crowley released Aziraphale. Did you? What? Wet your pants? I absolutely did not. It was a joke. Crowley turned the torch on again, held the light under his pointed chin, his face lighting up red, the shadows falling across his face making him look gaunt and very spooky. He growled, and Aziraphale rolled his eyes. I'll go back if you keep this up. Okay, okay, Crowley acquiesced. Come with me. He grabbed onto Aziraphale's wrist, dragging the shorter man behind him, shone the torchlight on the forest floor, revealing a path of rotting leaves, moss, and thin roots ahead of them. They picked over obstacles until they came to the edge of the wood. Almost there. Aziraphale's wrist burned where Crowley still grasped it his guiding hold unnecessary now, as it was just the grass ahead of them now, except for... he couldn't be serious. 
Fancy a swim? asked Crowley, placing the torch on the ground. Crowley, no, we're trespassing, said Aziraphale, voice hoarse and frantic. The full moon shone off the still water of the pond, bordered by lily pads and reeds. The small pier looked old, the wood splintered and untreated. No one had gone swimming here for years, Aziraphale thought. All the same, the pond belonged to a farmer, and it was never good to be a nuisance to a neighbor, and Crowley was taking off his shirt. What are you? Aziraphale found himself quite suddenly unable to breathe. The shirt came up and off over his shoulders, then his trousers, and he was left in a pair of dark boxer shorts. Alabaster skin glowed in the moonlight. Crowley's freckles were constellations across his shoulders, ribs like the rings of Saturn, all limbs and long lines and something not quite of this earth. He seemed so foreign to Aziraphale like this, but then, wasn't this the boy who lay in the bed next to his each night? Hadn't Aziraphale memorized the slow of his breathing as he fell asleep? There wasn't a stitch to him, and yet he was the greatest thing in the night sky. Aziraphale paled in comparison. Anthony was a giant, and Aziraphale was a speck of dust. Are you coming? Aziraphale was staring. Could Crowley see him? What? Come on! Crowley ran as gingerly as he could onto the pier, then in one smooth movement dove into the water. There was barely a splash. Aziraphale jogged up to the edge, looked for his nebula red shock of hair to emerge from the water. Finally, he surfaced, waded and turned to Aziraphale. Aziraphale, he whispered hoarsely. Get in! I'll do no such thing! He wrapped his arms around himself, watched as Crowley swam closer to him. His face was an unearthly white against the muddy brown water. Please, Angel. Aziraphale softened immediately in spite of himself. He could feel his sour mood fall through his fingers like wet sand. Crowley knew him too well, but he wanted to be convinced. Oh, I don't know. Angel, come for a swim. It'll be fun, I promise. Aziraphale's fingers traced the hem of his shirt. You promise? Crowley nodded, his arms stirring currents just under the surface of the water. Aziraphale reached down to pull off his shirt, then paused. A flush came to his cheeks, made his ears hot. He prayed it couldn't be seen in the low light. Don't look, he murmured. You've got to be kidding. It sounded like Crowley was aiming for offended and had slightly missed the mark, landing somewhere near injured. Please. Crowley sighed and spun in the water, swimming to the far side of the pond. Aziraphale slipped off his shirt and tucked his socks inside his shoes. The swell of his stomach pressed into the waist of his trousers, and he tried to suck it in for a second before giving up. The water was thick with silt. He'd just get in before Crowley could see him. He slipped off his trousers and stood in his shorts, watching the ripples from Crowley flutter across the water. He walked to the edge of the pier and dipped his feet in. Cold. The white of Crowley's eyes were bright in the dark. Don't look until I'm in, Aziraphale whined. Why? 
The sound of water shifting was the only thing he heard as Crowley waded closer. I... He swallowed. How was it not entirely obvious? One of his soft arms came around his soft middle. Azurophile, stop it. The words were meant to scold, but the tone was, well, not that. Something warm and aching. Crowley swam up to the dock, lifted himself partially out of the water, chin resting on crossed arms. Get in the water. It's cold. Get in. You're a pest. Then Crowley had his arm, had both arms, and was dragging him in and under. He surfaced, sputtering and spitting out water. His toes could just touch the velvety mud bottom. He coughed the water out of his lungs as Crowley snickered. Not so bad once you're in. You're a bloody menace is what you are. Aziraphale groped for the dock, pushed wet curls off of his forehead. I don't even like you. You do. Crowley bit back, grabbing Aziraphale by the arms again, pulling him back into the water, back to him. You do. He made the mistake he always made then, of looking into Crowley's eyes, flinting gold in the reflection of the moon off the water, hair plastered down wet and almost black on his white forehead. And even though there was still brown pond silt at the back of his throat and the taste of algae and mud on his tongue, Aziraphale wasn't mad anymore. He was something else entirely. The water shifted around them, small bubbles rose to the surface. What did a person call this thing? This thing that made your heart ache for someone even as they were right in front of you. The word for it rattled around in Aziraphale's belly, almost revealing itself, but then retreating, rabbit scared. Did he dare to give it a name? To name something was to make it real. To name something was to welcome it and give it a home. Crowley's hands were still on his arms. Aziraphale shifted and broke free, only to hook Crowley's long fingers with his shorter, thicker ones, all under the water, all unseen. If he couldn't see it, he could pretend it wasn't true, as if that was a framework he operated under, as if he hadn't built his entire life on the idea that things we couldn't see being the truest things there were. In the distance, a door swung on its hinges. A craggy voice yelled out into the night, Who's out there? Shit. Crowley hissed in delight, hands clamping around his Aziraphale's and pulling him towards the pond's edge. The men scrambled up the bank, feet tangling in reeds and water grass and lily pads, slipping on stones slick with algae and pond muck. They gathered their clothes in their arms and Crowley bent forward as he ran towards the woods, picked up the torch smoothly, whispered back, Go, go! Aziraphale clutched his clothes and shoes to his chest, jogged after the torchlight that bounced into the woods. After a minute, he caught up and Crowley had his hands over his mouth, his clothes abandoned at his feet, and his shoulders were shaking. He was trying to shove the laughter back in. Aziraphale's chest was heaving. He pulled his shirt over his head and it stuck to his body, still entirely wet. He tried to look stern, disapproving. That's why we shouldn't trespass, getting poor farmers out of bed at all hours. But there wasn't any heat to it, not with Crowley in front of him, wearing nothing but his pants stuck to his body, 
the lines of the muscles in his thighs clearly visible. He pulled on his trousers, grimacing at the sticky feel of dragging them on over his wet legs. The socks he stuck in his pocket, and he wrestled his feet into his shoes. Get dressed, he said to Crowley, staring at his own laces. We can't go back unless you get dressed. What if I don't want to go back? Crowley was leaning against a tree, his head back against the trunk, the torchlight illuminating his lower half. He was joking. He wasn't joking. Don't be silly. Aziraphale bent over, picked up Crowley's shirt, held it out to him. What if I don't want to go back? The question hung. Crowley did not take his shirt. What if? You have to, Aziraphale wanted to say. I couldn't bear it without you. I need you there. But to give air to it would be admitting that God wasn't enough. Aziraphale shrugged and pushed the shirt into the center of Crowley's thin chest, the outlines of his ribs just visible in the edges of the torchlight. Crowley held the shirt, his fingers just grazing Aziraphale's as he pulled away. They snuck in the back door of the seminary, headed up the dark stairwell, and were nearly at their room when a small voice emerged from the dark. Ah, Anthony, sorry. Father Shipton's looking for you. It was John Carlo, a nice enough lad that they had never spent any real time with. What's that about? We're adults. We're allowed outside. Crowley was immediately on the defensive, and John Carlo stepped back, falling into shadow more than before. No, not about that. I don't think he knows you've been out. It's about, um... I think you got a call from your family. They were all still for a moment, as the anger drained from Crowley's body. Aziraphale reached out, took Crowley's sweater from his arms. Go. I'll wait for you. Without saying a word, Crowley went with John Carlo and disappeared down the stairs. Aziraphale smelled like pond water. There was a leaf in his hair. He'd shower in the morning. He changed into a clean shirt and boxers, didn't bother to turn the light on, just left the curtain open for the scant moonlight the night provided. It was an hour before Crowley was back. As the door opened and the dim hallway light sliced through the room, Crowley followed, silent. Aziraphale sat up in bed. Everything all right? He asked. He couldn't see Crowley's face, but the lines of his body were curled in on themselves. Maintaining his silence, Crowley shed his shirt and trousers, leaving them in a pile on the floor, a habit he had mostly broken himself of at Aziraphale's insistence. He pulled back his blankets, refusing to look over at the seated man on the other bed. Crowley? My mother died. Crowley lay down, front turned to the wall and pushed the duvet up over himself. Aziraphale's heart stuttered in his chest. Oh, oh no, I'm so sorry. Don't, don't get upset. We weren't close. They had spoken about how Crowley and his siblings were raised mostly by their grandmother, how his parents had never been much in the picture, showing up for the occasional birthday or first communion, but still... It was your mother, though. I'm fine. Go to sleep, Aziraphale. But, please, just 
Go to sleep. Aziraphale lay down, stared at the spine of the man across from him. Sleep was nowhere near him. It was in a different country. He couldn't have said how much time had passed when Crowley rolled over onto his back and his long arm unfurled into the space between their two beds, his palm open and turned up. Aziraphale reached out to take it without speaking, squeezing hard, watching Crowley's sharp profile in the dark. You've been listening to That This Could Be The Kingdom by Sequel, a Good Omens podfic read by Arkafira and George Stoner. We'll return with part three.